was it just a combination of your kids and, and Sutton's kids? Okay. It was all the adoption that said adoption and has the beauty of the kernel and the patient and Abe were added at the end. At the end? Okay. Oh, I thought that was good. Hurry up, Kelly, grab a seat before they all get taken. As I hurry up and grab a seat before they all get taken. <laughs> yeah.
Leviticus tonight, and then uh, beginning June the 2nd, we will start a similar series on numbers, and uh, Tommy Evans is going to begin that series, so he'll have numbers chapters 1 through 10. So Leviticus 27, vows and dedication, and here we go, hear the word of the Lord. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to your valuation of persons belonging to the Lord. If your valuation is of the male from 20 years even to 60 years old, then your valuation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary. Or if it is a female, then your valuation shall be 30 shekels. If it be from 5 years even to 20 years old, then your valuation for the male shall be 20 shekels and for the female 10 shekels. But if they are from a month, even up to five years old, then your valuation shall be five shekels of silver for the male. And for the female, your valuation shall be three shekels of silver. If they are from 60 years old and upward, if it is a male, then your valuation shall be 15 shekels. And for the female, 10 shekels. But if he is poorer, then your valuation, then he shall be placed before the priest. And the priest shall value him according to the means of the one who vowed. The priest shall value him. Verse 9. 
Now, if it is an animal of the kind which men can present as an offering to the Lord, any such that one gives to the Lord shall be holy. He shall not replace it or exchange it, a good for a bad or a bad for a good. Or if he does exchange animal for animal, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. If, however, if it, it is any unclean animal of the kind which men do not present as an offering to the Lord, then he shall place the animal before the priest. The priest shall value it as either good or bad. As you, the priest, value it, so it shall be. But if you should ever wish to redeem it, then he shall add one-fifth of it to your valuation. Now if a man consecrates his house as holy to the Lord, then the priest shall value it as either good or bad. As the priest values it, so it shall stand. Yet, if the one who consecrates it should wish to redeem his house, then he shall add one-fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may be his. Again, if a man consecrates to the Lord part of the fields of his own property, then your valuation shall be proportionate to the seed needed for it, a homer of barley seed at 50 shekels of silver. If he consecrates his field as of the year jubilee, according to your valuation, it shall stand. If he consecrates his field after the jubilee, however, then the priest shall calculate the price for him, proportionate to the years that are left until the year of jubilee, and it shall be dedicated from your valuation. If the one who consecrates it should ever wish to redeem the field, then he should add one-fifth of your valuation price to it, so that it may pass to him. Yet if he will not redeem the field, but has sold the field to another man, it may no longer be redeemed. And when it reverts in the jubilee, the field shall be holy to the Lord. Like a field set apart, it shall be for the priest as his property. Or, if he consecrates to the Lord a field which he has bought, which is not a part of the field of his own property, then the priest shall calculate for him the amount of your valuation up to the year of Jubilee, and he shall on that day give your valuation as holy to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field shall return to the one from whom it brought it, to whom the possession of the land belongs. Every valuation of yours, moreover, shall be after the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel shall be twenty gerahs. However, a firstborn among animals, which is a firstborn, belongs to the Lord. No man may consecrate it, whether ox or sheep. It is the Lord's. But if it is among the unclean animals, then he shall redeem it according to your valuation and add to it one-fifth of it. And if it is not redeemed, then it shall be sold accordingly to your valuation. Nevertheless, anything which a man sets apart to the Lord out of all that he has, of man or animal, or of the fields of his own property, shall not be sold or redeemed. Anything devoted to destruction is most holy to the Lord. No one who may have been set apart among men shall be ransomed. He shall be surely put to death. Thus, all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of a herd, a flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or, if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's ask his help. Father, we do thank you for your wonderful word. And we thank you again for the opportunity to be here tonight. And we do pray. Lord, from this text, that you would instruct our hearts, that you would help us to grow in the wisdom and knowledge of you. And we ask these things 
In Christ's name, amen. So, earlier this week, uh, I was reading through Leviticus 27, and uh, April read through Levit- Leviticus 27, and so I asked her, do you have any, any wisdom or insights uh, since we're going to be ending up Leviticus this week? And she just looked at me, and after reading it, I said, good luck. <laughs> so, this is, uh, this is one of the reasons, I mean, one of many reasons why it's so important that you read through and preach through and teach through books of the Bible. Uh, today, this morning, would have been one of those passages that most people would would avoid. There's just too much confusion that's in there that many people are just, just like, I just, I'll, I'll be happy for it to, you know, to, to stay in a matter of uncertainty and in terms of interpretation. Tonight would be one of those passages where somebody would read through it and just think, What, I, I, like, how does this, how does this pertain to me? And, uh, and so I think it's, it's so good. I mean, we need to understand this biblical history for no other reason than to see that this is how God interacts with his people. This is God dealing with his people in the Old Testament during this time, pe- during this time period. It's a testimony that we see of God's covenantal faithfulness to every generation. And so every people who has come along throughout the generation, God continues to be faithful to them. And so God has never ceased to be faithful to His people. He continues to be gracious to them, even in the occasions when they make rash vows before the Lord. So by now, I'm sure you've all memorized uh, our uh, theme throughout the book of Leviticus. Leviticus, I'm about to read it for us because I haven't memorized it yet either. Leviticus is about God graciously providing a way for sinful and corrupt people to live in His holy presence. Let me say that again. Leviticus is about God graciously providing a way for sinful and corrupt people to live in His holy presence. And so Leviticus puts out there just the holiness of God. And as we understand our sinfulness, and our wickedness, it does bring forth that question. How can a sinful, corrupt, wicked people such as us, if we agree with all the ways the Bible describes us, how can we live in the presence of a holy God? It's a wonderful question. And um, the Lord's used this book over the last couple of months to help us to see the ways in which we can live with God. So one, uh, one author, I forgot to include his name in here, <clears throat> um, but he said about chapter 27, it's a puzzle why chapter 27, which deals with vows, should appear in its present position. Since chapter 26, the one uh, Brother Rick Talley uh, taught a couple weeks ago, with its blessing and curses, would have been a fitting conclusion to the book. So seemingly, chapter 26 would have been a wonderful way to just end the book. But instead, we have chapter 27. So why is it that God has positioned this chapter to really be the, not the conclusion of all that he has to say, but for this particular letter? So one view of it, why this may be the case, is that men more often make vows to the Lord during times of stress rather than times of prosperity. And so, 
person gets in a hard predicament and uh, oftentimes or sometimes a vow may be offered to the Lord. If you will get me out of this situation, I will do this. And it's a commitment. It's a vow, which really underneath it is saying, I just want to get out of trouble. I just and I, I'll, I'll commit to I'll pay, I'll do whatever I can in order for me to get out of this kind of trouble. But consider how to, you know, we, we think about how to draw this out even more practically. God, if you do this, then I will do this. Maybe think for a moment. And it, has that ever been, has that ever been your posture before the Lord? Have you ever approached God in that way? God, if you'll just do this, if you'll just get me out of this bind, this situation, this circumstance, or if you'll just allow me to have this, then fill in the blank, blank with a lot of commitments that you really don't believe and you really don't intend to follow through. And what we're going to see here in this chapter is the Lord takes these kind of vows Seriously. So, what is a vow? One, it's a commitment or an oath made to God. It's different from a covenant because with a covenant, a covenant requires blood. Vows, however, are matters of the heart. It's a, it's a heart commitment to God or, or an oath. And it's helpful for us as we consider vows or oaths or commitments we make to the Lord. These vows were not an obligation with the covenant. You were not required to make a vow to the Lord. However, if you did, you were instructed to keep the vow. So it's not a requirement of our covenant with God that we have to make vows to God or God has to make vows with us. But if we do make a vow to the Lord, there were instructions given for us to follow through with that commitment. Consider this warning from Proverbs chapter 20, verse 25. It is a trap for man to rashly say it is holy and after the vows to make inquiry. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 5, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying for it. For he, God, takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. It's a pretty clear warning. I remember uh, as a freshman or sophomore in college, um, I had been wrestling around with some sin. And so I made a, I made a vow to the Lord. I made a, a commitment to the Lord that uh, fairly quickly I broke. And my parents uh, talked to them, worked with them through these, through these matters. And I remember the next day before I left the house, uh, sheets of white paper and on the sheets of white paper were filled with verses about vows and the seriousness of making a vow before the Lord. And so the moral of the story from my mom to me in that moment was don't make these rational. Like you may not be taking this very serious but a host of verses like this Ecclesiastes would have been one of them of don't enter into these commitments with the Lord lightly in that way. And I found that to be, found that to be quite helpful. And uh, she gave me the, the definition and the danger of breaking these vows. 
uh, it immediately, what it, what it did for me is it immediately put an appropriate fear of the Lord that I otherwise had not considered. I hadn't thought about it as much at the time. I thought, I'll just make this commitment before the Lord. But what it helped me to see, even to this day, God's not, God's not meant to be trifled with. We, we cannot misunderstand His grace. It's, it's, it's uh, good for us to see God as loving, full of grace, full of mercy. Our salvation hinges on that. But we can't misunderstand that. We can't misappropriate His goodness and His grace and His mercy and His love in such a way that that gives us a license to break commitments to Him and gives us a license to continue in our sin. So, in other words, don't flippantly enter into commitments with Him. If, as we make commitments or vows or oaths before the Lord, then we do so intending by His grace to fulfill those in the strength that He provides. This commentator said, Kiladelich said, for a vow is a promise made by anyone to dedicate give his own person or a portion of his property to the Lord for averting some danger and distress or for bringing to his possession some desired earthly good. So it's a little bit about what a vow is. Now let's look at a couple or actually a few Old Testament examples of vows. One would be in Genesis 28-20. You may recall the story. Jacob offered to tithe his goods to God if he was brought home safely. What was Jacob doing? Jacob was fleeing from his brothers. So he offered to tie his goods to God if God would allow him to get home safely. Numbers chapter 21, verse 2. Israel had just suffered defeat by the Canaanites. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will destroy I will utter, utterly destroy their city. So this uh, vow defeated cities that Israel offered to the Lord if God would deliver them. Jonah, a story even more familiar to us. We have two vows made here. One, well, you know, the Lord had told Jonah to go to Nineveh, told him to repent, but instead, Jonah tried to flee from the Lord. So he gets on a boat, great storm comes up, the men on the boat began to, each of them, pray to their own God. So they drew lots. The lot fell to Jonah. What did they do with Jonah? They tossed him over the boat, and the sea stopped raging. So as soon as they tossed him over the boat, the sea stops raging. Well, the text says in chapter 1 that the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Well, just a few moments earlier, they're praying to their own God. And now they're making a vow to the Lord. The second vow is the one that Jonah made while he's in the belly of the fish. He says to the Lord, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. One verse later, the Lord causes him to be spit out from the mouth of the fish. Last Old Testament example. And this is just to show that that uh, this is not only just true here in chapter 27, but Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. Hear these instructions. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay him, for it will be sin in you 
and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. So it goes back to the example. It's not a requirement. But if you do make a vow, don't delay in paying. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. So a couple of instructions, a couple of examples, a couple of warnings uh, for these commitments that are before the Lord. So let's look at the verses that we have here, the items or objects that could be vowed to the Lord. Seven categories in Leviticus 27. The first we find is the humans, verses 1 through 8. You can see how this age breakdown, if for males, age 20 to 60, they could, um, they could pay 50 shekels in order for them to be uh, permitted to leave their vow. Males aged 5 to 20, 20 shekels. One month to age 5, 5 shekels. 60 plus would be 15 shekels. Of females, the age 20 to 60 range would be 30 shekels. Five to, age 5 to 20 would be 10 shekels. One month to 5 years old, 3 shekels. 60 plus year olds, 10 shekels. And in special cases, the, the uh, text said that the priest would be the one that would value them. So, what, what's, what's, what's going on here? Well, this was a dedication of service to God in the sanctuary. And so this is a dedica- they were dedicating themselves to service to God in the sanctuary. They had made a commitment to do so. So, if they were to get out of this commitment, to free themselves from this vow, they had to, pr- they had to pay a price. And it was a fair market price for what they would be worth on the open market. Because during this time, only priests and only Levites were permitted by right to be able to work in the sanctuary. So other vows you can commit to the Lord would be animals, verses 9 through 13. You had acceptable offerings. You had the unclean animal. And we know from our study in Leviticus that there were, what, quite a few sacrifices and offerings that were going on. And so it was not uncommon for uh, the Israelites to offer one of their animals for a sacrifice or as a vow. But if you sought to change your mind when it came time for the sacrifice, perhaps you thought that maybe you were a little bit more generous when you initially offered your animal as a vow. If you considered uh, wanting to take it back or get something back for that, then uh, if you tried offering something less, well, verse 10 says something happened. Both of them become holy to the Lord. Both of them will become the sanctuaries. Verses 14 through 15, you could make a vow on your home. Verses 16 through 25, on your property during the year of Jubilee, after the year of Jubilee. said that the failure to redeem the land before the year of Jubilee would forfeit the property to the priests. Verses 26 and 27, the firstborn among animals. This was something that could not be you could not use the firstborn among animals or firstborn among humans as a vow because these things, or persons, were already dedicated to the Lord and cannot be used in making a vow. Verse 28 through 29, things that are set apart. And then lastly, verses 30 through 33, tithes of the land and of flocks. And so these were vows that, that could and could not be made to the Lord, and penalties that would be happening if you tried to, to 
take them back. So lastly, the postscript. The very last verse in 34. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. So how do we tie all of this together? Perhaps it's fittingly so that as this chapter suggests, Leviticus ends on honoring the very commitments that we make before the Lord. You do this vertically with God, and we do this horizontally with one another. We honor our, we honor our commitments before the Lord. We honor our commitments that we make with one another. Chapter 26, we, are, we, we see that there were rewards and there, there were warnings of punishment. Chapter 27, we find no mention of rewards or blessings. You pay extra if you want to redeem or you want to reclaim something that you have already committed to the Lord. Victor Hamilton uh, said this, Leviticus ends on the priceless privilege of pure acts of adoration and devotion to one's God. Motivated, not by any promise of prosperity in return, in fact, it's going to make you in some cases 20% poorer, but simply by one's love for the Lord and sanctuary. Consider this as we think about Leviticus overall as a whole. True holiness in Christ is going to hold forth these two objectives. It's going to be the promises of God and the commitment of the Lord's people. The promises of God and the commitments of His people. God's faithfulness is thread throughout both of these objectives. Making a vow before the Lord is a serious matter. God's done something greater than making a vow with us. He has entered into an eternal covenant with us that is binding through the one-time offering of the shed blood of Christ. So even in this text, we, you see the offer to switch animals in verse 10 and verse 33. You end up losing both of them. Or you pay 20% extra if you choose to redeem or keep the property that you had originally vowed to the Lord. So it will cost you to go back on your commitments before the Lord. It's a picture. It's, it's a metaphor. You make a commitment before the Lord. You don't follow through on that commitment of the Lord. Here is a picture of what it will cost you materially or through possessions. And it's a metaphor for the kind of uh, commitment or, or the potential punishment if you don't follow through with the commitments that you've made before the Lord. Remember the text that we looked at just a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul talks about the discipline of his life and doing so so that he would not disqualify himself. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they were of us, they would not have sinned in these ways, is what 1 John holds out there. So we have these themes of vows and consecration and redemption and ransom, and we see all of these and the connections that are tied to the atonement that we have in Christ. Christ is our redemption. He is our ransom. And for us, because of this and light of this, we make vows and commitments before the Lord. We honor Him. We want to obey Him, not just in word, but also in deed. We, we honor Him not just with our lips, but we honor Him with our heart. Remember when they were, uh, 
when Jesus told them, rightly that Isaiah prophesied about you worship me with your lips, but your hearts are there, your hearts are far from me. Therefore, you worship me in vain. Your worship is useless. Christ is our redemption. He's our ransom. And in light of this, we are free to make commitments to the Lord where we can trust his faithfulness is great enough for us to be able to follow through with these very commitments that we make to the Lord. These aren't rash, flimsy, undoctored commitments. These are commitments that are motivated and stem from a heart that loves God, a heart that desires to be holy in all aspects of our life. So we started this study, where was Moses? He's outside the tent. When we get to numbers in a couple of weeks, inside the tent. Our theme throughout this entire letter has been, how can we have access to a holy God? How can we access a holy God? He's not like this distant deity, this object made with human hands. We have access to Him. We do so. As, as Leviticus has pointed out, the way we have access to a holy God, Leviticus has helped us to see that this access to a holy God is through our need of Christ. It's the necessity of Christ. Through Christ, we are able to draw near to a holy God. This holy God welcomes sinful and corrupt people such as us. Why? Because we don't come in our own strength. We don't come with our own righteousness. We come in those who have been clothed with the very righteousness of Christ. We come covered with the blood of Christ. That one-time act, that one-time offering. Christ is the perfect high priest. He is our priest before a holy God to testify. Christ is testifying that His offering of Himself is enough to satisfy God's just wrath toward us. We see in Leviticus that Christ is the offering. We see in Leviticus that Christ is the altar. We see in Leviticus that Christ is the door. We see in Leviticus that Christ is the veil. We see in Leviticus that Christ is behind the veil. We see in Leviticus that Christ is the aroma of these sacrifices, the aroma that's offering up to the Lord. The blood of the sacrifices foreshadows our need for the blood of Christ. These indeed were the commands of God. We see that in verse 34. These are the commands. God gave these commands to Moses for the people of Israel. And He gave them to him while He was on Mount Sinai. We're not on Mount Sinai, are we? However, we have something and someone better. We're, we're, we're in a better position because we have access to this God. And our access is through the mediatorial, sacrificial, sufficient, and perfect Christ. Hebrews 12, 18 and 22. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words, which sound was such that those who begged, or excuse me, those who heard, begged that no further word be spoken to them. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You see, 
what Leviticus is pointing us to. We're no longer under the law. We are under the grace of God that's made this way possible through the gospel. Matthew Henry said the doctrine doctrine of our reconciliation to God by mediator is not clouded with the smoke of burning sacrifices, but cleared by the knowledge of Christ and Him crucified. Let me say that again. Think about this picture of the sacrifices that are there. The cloud of smoke that was offered. He's saying the doctrine of our reconciliation to God. God making us an enemy right with Him. No longer an enemy, but a friend. By medium, it's no longer clouded with the smoke of burning sacrifices. But now it's clear by the knowledge of Christ and Him crucified. When Abednego closes his commentary on Leviticus with this jewel right here. And here's where we'll, here's where we'll finish up. Leviticus, Leviticus 27 points out that holiness is more than a matter of divine call and correct ritual. It's more to it than that. Its attainment requires a total consecration of a man's life to God's service. It involves giving yourself, your family, and all your possessions to God. So Leviticus does answer. It does answer how sinfully corrupt people can live and experience joy in the holy presence of a holy God and not be incinerated immediately. It is through the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Isn't he faithful? Isn't he faithful? Isn't he he, he good? And as ones who now have a holy standing before this holy God, this is our position before him, we are free. We are free. We are free to pursue practical holiness. That's the outcome. That's the outcome. That's the result of this freedom that we now have in Christ. To pursue practical holiness. A life that is lived from, through, and for Christ. So, thank God for this wonderful book. Thank God for how this this challenging text points us to just a multifaceted way for how God brings us to himself through the offering of Jesus Christ. And God accepted it for his glory and for our salvation. Let's pray, and then we can figure out what we're going to do for the next 22 minutes since we're done really early. All right? God, thank you for this time that you've given us tonight. We do thank you for Leviticus. We thank you for your precious word. And Lord, we pray. But some of us here, this might have been one of the first few times that we really looked at or considered this book. And I pray that it won't be the last. I pray that we will find ourselves often in Leviticus. And rather than being bogged down by some of the terminology or uh, lack of just immediate understanding of context, we pray that our heart will be warmed by the precious reality that you have made a way possible for us to be in your holy presence. And that's through the mediatorial priestly work of Christ. We give thanks to you for him. And we ask, Lord, that in light of these things, that we would be a holy people before you. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.